0: Hello, this is Informer, a show that reveals the latest ideas from artists, thinkers, and technologists. Informer invites you behind the screen to meet the people sketching, hacking, and imagining the next versions of our world. I'm Roddy Schrock, your host, and in each episode, I spotlight creative minds grappling with a changing world through art, technology, or often both. And I hope you'll subscribe to this podcast at informerpodcast.com, you can also find show notes, links, and more information on all of the artists and projects that we discuss. I'm so pleased I was able to visit Buffalo in December. It may not be the first place one thinks of visiting in the winter, but there was a great reason to do so. Artist Paul Venuse and curator and art historian Dr. Tina Rivers Ryan brought together the fantastic exhibition Difference Machines at the Albright-Knox it's a show highlighting artists working in and around technology that focuses on its role in creating difference or identity. This was surprisingly the first time I have seen a museum exhibition dedicated solely to bringing together artists exploring myriad roles of technology in shaping our social realities over the last 30 years. I begin today's episode with an on site visit to the exhibition itself and speak to Paul and Tina about the show. I held a follow-up call with Dr. Tina Rivers Ryan to ask her a few more questions about some of the artists featured in the second part of today's episode. I hope you enjoy learning more about this unique exhibition and getting to know Paul and Tina. I began by asking Paul what the role of art is in our understanding of technologies and their impacts
1: on our lives. One of the ways I think that art deals with things is by um never taking sort of the technologies as they're handed to them but always having a notion of of intervening whether it seems just for creative reasons or whether it's for like truly interventionist reasons so i think one way that that artists successfully can take this on is by is by basically kind of reverse engineering or always thinking about how to reverse or do something backwards the wrong way how to sort of use um, uh, these these things and I think when you once you, once things are kind of uh, been kind of deconstructed in this way when you start to re, to re- put them back together they, they sometimes show things that aren't even intended right they, they sometimes kind of reveal um their kind of hidden affordances but also their kind of the way they are entrapping right And the way and they're kind of their sort of presuppositions and their sort of underlying kind of belief systems and so yeah that i think this is how artists get get getting and can do things for the conversation that others can.
2: So Paul highlights the answer from the artist's perspective, right, like that it's about this material engagement with technology, how you're intervening and sort of the materials and the process of technology. Um, I'll answer that question from the perspective of the audience, right, which is that artists also can make visceral, can make concrete, can make tangible technologies that frankly are often... Uh, you know, invisible, quote unquote, right? That are, or at least, you know, that operate in ways that are sort of either beyond the scale of the human sensorium, beyond the capacity of any individual to sort of see and understand and process and register. Um, that might be deliberately hidden or obscured if you think about sort of um, you know, terms and conditions, the history of these technologies, how they're put together. Um, so, for example, for Hassan Alahi's work, um, you know, this work is very much about digital databases and about the scale of digital databases. And, you know, Paul mentioned this is like over 32,000 of those photos from tracking transients, and it's like how do we imagine, how do we visually imagine um, or, or conceptually imagine uh, the scale of these databases and it's something that is very hard for people to sort of wrap their heads around and the fact that this is, you know, I, I talk a lot on my tours um, with audiences about the scale of this work, like why is it 26 feet tall? Why does it have to be so big? Why are there so many photos that are included and they're so small and, you know, a lot of people don't even realize that they are, that it is a collage of photos until they get up close to it and it's precisely about sort of blowing your mind and making you confront the fact that we're talking about databases that exist at a scale that is sort of beyond comprehension right and trying to make that concrete for people um, is is part of the work but you know Paul actually was really great at articulating in our early conversations that you know this show is not just about race it's not just about um, you know gender orientation disability it's about the production of difference that was the language that you gave me that framework you had that phrase it's about the production of difference right and a sort of meta level how is difference produced socially Um, and so that one of our essays for the book is about that
1: yeah one of, the, one of the things that stuck with me was a comment that Maria Fernandez um, made in the, in the 90s um, when we were both at Carnegie Mellon. Um, she is a professor, and he is a student. And I remember her saying, "You know that uh, you know everybody's so fascinated with the kind of dichotomy of technology and the body that it, that all this kind of great work in postcolonial theory has just been like left uh, left to the wayside." And you know, she was including me and the other artists who were, who were incorporating. It. it was it was never it could never be. Um, it, it was always kind of downplayed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Raphaelle Hammer, who's here, was one mm-hmm. of the people she was also really interested in in this in this yeah. content. But so um, yeah, I guess I, I, I what, what she saw, and I think what I realized was was correct was that there there were all these other kind of tools that came along with deconstruction were kind of on display in the way that that new media like really progressive new media was talked about and shown Mm -hmm. except for the post-colonial dimension that somehow seemed to kind of be yeah again somehow even when artists were thinking it through Mm -hmm. somehow was not emphasized yeah, in yeah. the digital shows the festivals yeah the, the shows kept
2: falling back on this idea of subjectivity that yeah. once again was universal yeah. you know, it was like how do we you know we're it's in this moment of post-colonial theory and yet yeah. Yeah. in, in the circuit of art and technology we're reverting back to this you know <laughs> right. default like universal <laughs> subject which of course yeah, yeah. is not neutral but is default you know yeah. cisgendered male yeah. white heterosexual right. uh, you know North American European um, and so, yeah, she wrote this post-colonial media theory article that was in an Art Journal. Um, that yeah, we cite in our catalog essay, you know, as being an important um, early example of imagining another history or another sort of um, another history, another theory, or another canon of media art that that understands how technology actually. Um, you know, is bound up in the production of, of subject formations, yep. right, and yep. that it's not, yep. that yep. technology yep. itself is not neutral, exactly. right, and that yep. how artists can can actually, and have since the 1990s, yep. you know, and, and even earlier, have yep. been if you think about, you know, like, Keith Piper's work from the 80s, sure. or Lynn Hirschman Leisman, right, understanding yep. that, like, we shouldn't think of technology as just this, like, neutral tool, and we shouldn't think of the subjects of technology as this, like, default, you know, tabula rasa, universal subject, right? Mm-hmm. Um... And so, yeah, that's been, a, that's been uh, an important part of the conversation around media art. But as Paul said, as Maria points out, it's like somehow the, that, that perspective, you know, hasn't been centered, right? Or like that, that, that insight hasn't been centered in a way. And so we really wanted to center that here by centering the artists who have been having that conversation for so long.
0: I wanted to continue on this thread, so I spoke to Tina further. And she began by providing more context about the state of art and technology at this time, and elaborated further the role institutions play in providing specificity and historicizing the work of digital artists who are digging in deep on issues of identity and difference. I also managed a few minutes into our conversation to ask one of the most convoluted questions ever in an attempt to avoid using the dreaded acronym NFT. It didn't work. We ended up talking about NFTs a lot.
2: Paul has been making art for 30 years that is about the sort of social context of technology and the social consequences of technology, thinking in particular about the way that digital technologies intersect with the way that we construct notions of race, for example. And I have been thinking about these same issues about digital technology and how it relates to society. Not quite as long as Paul has, but almost as long, Um, and not as an artist, but as an art historian and then as a critic and now as a curator. Um, And we both felt that, you know, while we're very excited that there has been renewed interest in digital art in institutional contexts, so as you well know, there have been multiple phases of institutional support for artists working with emerging practices. Um, You know, a big one sort of in the mid to late 90s that ended with the dot-com bubble, then a kind of revival about 10 years later um, with the whole post-internet movement, right? Then you have the VR craze of 2016, the AR craze of 2017. It's like there's been all of these moments, right, of the institutional embrace of artists working with technology. But um, like all of those shows are really important, like laying the groundwork, right? Establishing that artists are using new technologies, establishing that those new technologies are a a viable and valid part of the practice of contemporary art, the discourse of contemporary art, um, sort of establishing the who, what, where, when, how and why. Um, But at a certain point, and this is something that the critic Brian Jokor wrote, you know, back in 20 whatever it was, um, uh, in his review um, uh, of what he called the Internet show. That, you know, now we need to sort of start drilling down a little bit and talk with greater specificity and not just attempt to have these large scale surveys. You will have exhibitions that will include an artist like Stephanie Dinkins or like Morris Nellyari, but they're usually presented within the context of these much broader um, shows, right, that might be about like mm, art and technology, which is such a huge topic that it's very difficult to say anything with any sort of real degree of specificity or nuance. And so that work is very important. But I think we're ready to sort of push into like, you know, a a new round where we are um, talking with greater specificity about certain topics and also historicizing. Um, That's another thing that's sort of been lacking. And I know that you also appreciated that about our show about the intergenerational dialogues. To understand that, okay, this might be a theme that is being dealt with now, but in fact, there is a history to this because we have had digital art for fifty years, um, and and so especially since the nineties, a lot of the artists uh, working today are, you know, uh, they are dealing with topics that have been engaged with, particularly since the nineteen nineties. So, and it's not to say that shows like this haven't been done before. Um, so, you know, in our uh, catalog essay for the show, we cite. Some early examples of exhibitions in the 90s that were dealing with, for example, post-colonialism, or uh, you know what we now might call critical race theory, um, and the intersection with digital tools. Uh, in a way, it's kind of calling for a return to those kinds of thematic group shows that we saw 30 years ago that have been a little bit off the radar. So, so yeah. So our our motive was really to uh, to present a show that looked at digital technology specifically through the lens of identity and identity not understood as um, something that's sort of personal and subjective, but understood as a social construct, understood as something that is tied to systemic forms of inequity and oppression. And then within that, we knew we had certain objectives like the fact that we wanted to have an intergenerational show that, you know, really teased out some of these antecedents, people like Keith Piper. So the earliest work in the show from 1992 by Keith Piper Um, Groups like Mongrel, people like Mendy and Keith Obadike, just to say that, you know, artists have been dealing with this issue, which is so thorny and so political and so conceptually rich for a really long time. As a curator, I also had a little bit of a chip on my shoulder. I really wanted to show people the richness of, you know, artists working with digital technologies that, I mean, I don't even want to call it digital art. Like, it's such an awkward. I keep on trying to use all these euphemisms. I yeah, because I know. Because, <laughs> like, what is even digital art? And obviously, a lot of artists don't want to identify as digital artists. They just want to be contemporary artists without qualification, right? Or, um which is a whole other topic of conversation, but um, that, you know, artists working with digital tools now, you know, they they can make works that look like a lot of different things, that look like paintings, that look like sculptures, that look like photographs, that look like uh, websites, that look like interactive games, that look like software programs, that look like social media performances, you know, and, and that they can have sort of the full richness of, of contemporary art in terms of the effective responses that they elicit, in terms of the um, sort of, you know, the way they engage you conceptually, emotionally, phenomenologically. Um, so that was, that was another sort of big motive for the show is to really think about, about um, uh, the diversity of contemporary art and contemporary digital practices and like every single sense of that term.
1: You
0: know, as you were saying that, I was just thinking to myself that there's a lot of energy spent almost justifying the work's existence as art. And I sometimes worry that that energy that's taken around that ends up not being spent in actually exploring the work itself and I wonder kind of going to that next level um, what were some of the highlights for you in the work itself as art practice?
2: Yeah no I mean that's a that's a really good point I mean I think that's precisely why we've sort of wound up with the kinds of shows we've wound up with recently is because So much energy had to be expended. I agree with you. And I understand why, you know, on defending these practices as artistic practices. And I think that in the case of this show, I think that when we were putting it together, um, we really foregrounded the argument and the way that that argument emerged out of our engaging with these works. Um, And then, you know, whether like arguing whether or not these things are art was sort of not it, It was a secondary point, not the primary one. Um, and so I think that that's maybe one of the reasons why the show is so compelling for people, actually, is that we're not trying to rehash that same debate. Um, but I do think that it, it comes through, um, that, that that case is made. It's just not the sole – it's just not the thesis of the show. So some moments for me, you know, seeing works of variable media in person, like I always try to impress upon people the importance of seeing all works of art in person, including digitally native, born digital, variable media works um, – and just thinking about scale and, and texture and interfaces and hardware systems and how all of that necessarily impacts our experience of a work. Um, so you can know about the work. Uh, you can see reproductions of it. You can even look at the files on your laptop screen. But then when you actually see the works in person, there's always going to be some surprises, right? Especially because so many of the projects were imagined as, as installation projects. I think for me, one of the surprises was Hassan Alahi's work Thousand Little Brothers, which we installed hanging on the brick wall of the north, the north end of the the space. So the the space that the show is presented in is this, you know, former industrial space that's been retrofit as a temporary art exhibition space while we expand our main campus. And, uh, the space was left quite raw right with these like concrete floors and really tall ceilings and we knew we wanted to use this giant banner by Hassan to activate the height of the building and Hassan was very excited because he doesn't often get to show the work because it is so tall it was originally designed for a multi-story um stairwell so it would hang sort of you know and and it's 26 feet or something like that and uh When we hung it up, I mean, I'd seen reproductions of it, but seeing a work in person that's like 15 feet wide and 26 feet tall or something is just very different. And in particular, seeing it in front of the brick pattern, Paul and I both immediately stood back and were like, wow, because the the work comprises like 32,000 photos that Hassan took from, you know, over the course of his daily activities um, as part of an Internet based project called Tracking Transients that he started in 2002 And so it's just this huge grid, right, of all of these little photos. And when it went up in front of the brick wall, there was this beautiful echoing, this beautiful relationship that was established between the grid of the photos and the grid of the brick. And as I quipped the other day on social media, I was just writing a post about this work, like, if you wanted to be really smart about it, right, considering that Hassan's work is all about digital surveillance and the role of photography and digital surveillance, um... Like, you could sort of make a quip about, like, you know, the transition from the industrial to the post-industrial economy and, like, the evolution of ideas of subjectivity, whereas was once we had, like, the Fordist subject and now we have the post-Fordist subject. Like, you could do all sorts of, like, fun things. But at the end of the day, I think it was just a really beautiful installation, actually, in terms of being uh, artworks. Another moment would be, uh, I think... Uh, Stephanie Dinkins's installation, which you know, I didn't expect to surprise me because it's a pretty straightforward work. It's a four-channel um, video piece. You know, it's been shown on screens of varying sizes. Usually, it's shown um, in a kind of grid formation, and we took advantage of a particular opportunity where we had um, two walls that met at an oblique angle. Um, And we decided to situate the four flat screen monitors for that work right over – to center that grid right over that angle so that the – there would be two monitors on the left side of where the two walls met and then two monitors on the right. And it – just having – just introducing that angle, right, in in, in that grid – allowed the monitors on the left and on the right to speak to each other in a way that they don't normally when they're just shown on a flat wall like normally there's no relationship between the monitors except they're just sort of like face out towards the viewer but now they're slightly angled in towards each other so now they kind of seem to reflect each other which very nicely mirrors if you will the the reflection happening in the video itself where you see Stephanie in each video on each monitor Speaking to a black woman robot and mirroring her movements and even copying her dress, like trying to sort of look like her um, as she has this conversation with this artificially intelligent robot. Um, And so, again, that's just there is something so sort of pleasing, for lack of a better word, something kind of elegant, like concept, like visually beautiful, but also conceptually elegant, right? That it that sort of brought out something in the work, like it it underscored this idea of mirroring and reflection in a way that would not, you know, in a way that you don't get when you're just looking at like the four videos on your screen.
0: You know, I guess it's just so interesting to see how suddenly there's so much interest in non-tangible forms of digital art for lack of a better description while at the same time it's like we've sort of alighted all of the work that's happened as you said over the last 40 years in some ways uh, in the larger kind of art canon um, that is highly tangible and deeply engaged with emerging relationships to technology. I guess I just wondered like how, how you feel perhaps about the kind of digital turn that we've seen happen in the arts, for lack of a better uh, holder for what's happening, and um, or if you agree that there is a digital turn, and you know what what do we do with the kind of interest both you know monetarily and otherwise around kind of emerging forms of digital art um, mm-hmm. that do not have the same kind of tangible uh, component while. Realizing that there's a wealth of history and work um, that, in some ways, still hasn't gotten its sort of share of the spotlight, uh, even though it's it's been uh, in 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 creation for you know many many decades now.
2: Does that make sense, Roddy? I can't believe you asked that entire question. You went on that whole monologue and didn't use the words NFT. I'm like, trying I, to avoid you it. You did such a great <laughs> that was like watching. Like an Olympic level like <laughs> gymnastic routine that you just like went through all of those hoops. So I, I I've I've been banging my drum a little bit about this. I actually don't believe in quote unquote intangible art. Um, except I mean I was about to say except in certain like instances of conceptual art, but even then probably not actually. Um, as I always say, like until we have a means of directly beaming content into our brains you always have to interface with it through your sensory apparatus right like there is always media this famous line from friedrich kittler german media theorist right like and still there are media right no matter how sophisticated our technology gets we still have to use our our sensory organs to get that information into our body which means we are still dealing with scale, luminosity, tactility, like all of these things still matter. And, you know, and again, Brian Jokor made that point that, you know, we, we talk about, oh, well, you know, installing, you know, crypto art, NFT, tokenized art, whatever you want to call it, you know, in physical space. And he's like, well, you looking at it on your laptop screen is also a kind of installation, right? Like, let's not forget about the fact that even our personal computing devices are yeah. sites of of engagement right our sites of interface um and we can talk about the specificity of how we interact right with these systems and i and i mean i mean like interactivity or interface and in like a, the broadest possible sense right so not only what are the physical apparatuses but also like what are the cultural apparatuses the cultural codes like the the cultural habits right so um, and and I, I mean, I'm really interested in artists who actually think about this. So for example, um, a long time ago, I curated a show that included a work by Ivan and Franco Matas called No Fun, which is a great work of theirs, highly controversial, where um, they used uh, a, a media platform that called Chat Roulette that allowed people to sort of randomly, like Russian roulette style, be paired with somebody to video chat with um, and they staged a scene where uh, – so that when somebody came into the chat roulette, what they saw was uh, what appeared to be a man's lifeless body hanging from a noose in a room. And they recorded the, um, the response of these, like, unsuspecting bystanders, basically, who were conscripted into this, like, media art performance. And uh, it's kind of amazing because, you know, some people laugh Some people look really nervous or awkward. And only one person tried calling the cops, if I remember correctly. So the work is very much about intimacy and distance, responsibility, um, especially as it relates to like the public sphere as imagined through social media networks, et cetera, et cetera. So when I uh, presented this show, the show was actually it was one of the salons for the current museum. And these salons were presented in a condo in Soho. And so it was actually a domestic space. And so I talked to Ava and Franco about how to show this work, basically, which is video documentation. And um, their preferred installation is that it's actually shown on a laptop on a bed. And I was like, well, that's perfect, because I literally have a bedroom. (laughs) Like I happen to have uh, a bed and a bedroom at my disposal. So we sort of sprung it on people like unsuspecting like mm-hmm. this, this work was installed, you know, on a laptop on a bed that you would like pass by on your way to go into the bathroom. And if I remember correctly, I think I installed another work in the bathroom, too. Um, and and so I just mentioned this work to point out that, you know, they were very much thinking about, well, what is the what was the sort of original context for this work. Like how did people interact with it? And it was through their personal laptops in the private space of their homes. Mm -hmm. And so the installation of the work is supposed to sort of amplify that in some way. So that there are certain codes, right, about how we use our um, our, you know, personal computing devices in private space, and how that relates to ideas of, of privacy and publicity, and what social media has done to all of that. And anyways, like really interesting questions. And so, this is my very long-winded way of saying that. Um, I think for me, I get I get really upset when people talk about um, uh, or, or imagine that there is a kind of digital art that exists outside of um, the sort of physical. And particular contingent kinds of encounters for two reasons one is that on an aesthetic level it denies the the fact that you know how like even just what scale the image is, right will impact your experience of it as i like to point out to people something that's sort of larger than your body like if you think of like rific anadols like enormous screens or something necessarily requires you to sort of step back And to watch it with other people in congregate, and it makes it a very public kind of experience where you are witnessing Mm -hmm. something akin to, like, a history painting from the 19th century, right? Like, it's a bold public statement that's being made. Whereas something that's very intimate and small, like the kind of work that you would watch, like, you know, on your cell phone, um, it it just invites a completely different – I already used the word intimate. like It's just a completely different kind of engagement, right? It's more personal, more private. It makes a different kind of statement. So – so I object to it on aesthetic reasons, right? Because I do think that things like scale, et cetera, matter. And the second reason I object to it is because to deny the the sort of physical specificity of your encounter with the digital work of art is to deny the politics of that encounter, right? That that to deny the site of like to 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 suggest that digital artworks don't exist in networks that are both technological and cultural is highly problematic for me. And so that was another sort of point in a way of difference machines, right, is to say that technologies are not outside of culture. Like, you know, in a sense, we could say that this entire exhibition that Paul and I co-curated is our answer to the idea that technologies are neutral.
0: Yeah, I love the way that you're describing that. And it reminds me a little bit of when there was a kind of movement in the music world around laptop music and 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 digital performance using laptops and so forth but you know i remember there was a theorist a music theorist named kim cascone and he had this theory of like the micro gesture as a type of performance on laptops um as though somehow it would be interesting to see someone moving their fingers on a mouse pad and i remember thinking at the time i was like oh, I love digital music, I love computer music, I love laptop music. I even you know, performed uh, myself in, in a music group for a, for a long time that that used that technology. But at the same time, I don't expect anyone to think that the kind of micro theater of me moving a mouse on stage is necessarily interesting. I
2: mean, in a lot of ways, I think of myself as kind of an unreconstructed formalist in the sense that I truly think that the meaning of a work of art derives very much from how an artist uses their materials and materials can be like literally material substrate or it can be like apparatuses, technologies, ideas um, in order to express whatever it is they're trying to express. And um, so it's funny because I know I've just been banging my drum about like, you know, the, the context of, you know, technology and, and, and politics and ideological circuits and all of these things. But for me, the important thing is that all of that emerges from the form, right? Like it emerges like, it's not just a matter of bringing that context. Like, being a social art historian means that basically you, you know, you bring the social context to the work, right? And you explain that this work emerged in this particular social context and you can sort of, like, make connections. But the best social art history actually grounds all of that analysis in the work itself, right? Like, yeah. understands how that is all manifest in the in the way that the artist approaches their tools or uses their tools or manipulates their medium. And so I think... Um, you know just to to sort of try to like loop things together here right that it is very important to think about um about you know like like you're talking about these like micro gestures and are they meaningful or not and you know it's like y- the understanding like asking those questions is how you're supposed to get to these larger cultural analyses right and like right. And i think that that is you know, that that's what what we were trying to do in Difference Machines was to really not just say, oh, here's art and technology. And oh, by the way, technology has a politics, but rather here is how artists explore the technology or explore the politics of the technology through the technology, through the art, right? How politics is sort of emergent from the tools themselves and artist manipulation of them, um, rather than just having a sort of paragraph on the wall, making some claims about some politics.
0: Do you have a sense of, um, I guess, kind of going back to this kind of, you know, statement that I made earlier that I, I feel like there's a, a digital turn in the art world, what, however one might define that. Um, is that something that you would agree with? I
2: actually was just thinking, like, not even an hour ago, what I would give to just, like, fast forward five years and find out whatever happened to NFTs. Like, I really wish I knew how the story ends. Um, I was just seeing earlier today, Kevin, um, Kevin Buist was um, tweeting something about how and he's such a great cultural commentator, um, but tweeting something about, you know, how it's either going to wind up, you know, as the acolytes of Web3 would prognosticate, it's going to be something that's like completely endemic, it's going to go to widespread adoption, everyone in your mother is going to have NFTs, Which is funny because I was just rewatching this video that I tweeted out about the Guggenheim's virtual reality show in 93, where they were, um, Thomas Dolby is talking about how great it's going to be that, you know, your grandmother's going to get into virtual reality because we're not just going to have, like, dinosaur triceratops games, we're going to have, like, Bach concertos in VR. And so even your grandmother, I'm like, well, this is such a classist thing to assume that my grandmother's interested in Bach concertos or whatever. But, um, you know, it's like, okay, yeah, okay, maybe my grandmother will get into NFTs, sure. Um... But uh, it's either that or it's, you know, going to become this very niche thing where there's just a small group of people who are obsessed with these. And um, I don't know. I mean, I really honestly and truly don't know. And in a way, I'm trying to I don't want to say hedge, but like. I, you know, I'm very interested in this space because it's my business to be interested in digital art and to follow digital artists. And I think that there is good art made in any market. I think there's good art made in any medium. And it's my business to know where that good art is coming from and to make sure that I'm not being prejudicial and that I'm being open-minded and that I'm, you know, I don't want to say like, you know, I mean, a lot of people think the job of a curator or a critic is to be a gatekeeper or a tastemaker, but I actually see it as, as being sort of receptive enough to keep the gates open, right? To try to, you know, make sure that the story that we're telling, like, for example, my mandate at work, right? Like, what do I do for a living? What do I actually do? I help conserve culture for posterity, right? Like, I am charged with making sure that the institution at which I work is collecting and preserving the most important art of our times that reflects contemporary life so that generations from now people can look back and learn about the culture that gave rise to theirs right so um you know it's my job to always be looking for what are going to be the most influential ideas and you know what are the artists who are really pushing the boundaries of or, or changing the conversation let's say because I don't like pushing the boundaries just for pushing the boundary sake it's like you have to have a point like what are you trying to say right and so you know what are they you know what are they what are the conversations we're trying to have right and so um there are good conversations everywhere (laughs) and so I'm, i'm i'm keeping my mind open but i but in terms of like and i definitely think there are interesting conversations happening right now in the crypto space as well as in the contemporary art space there are also bad conversations happening in the crypto space as well as in the contemporary art space um not to say that they're completely reducible. I don't I mean, I really take issue with a lot of the um, whataboutism that's happening right now in these debates. So they are not equivalent in many ways. Um, but uh, I don't know. I, I don't know whether the mainstream contemporary art world, for example, will be like regularly buying, selling, exhibiting NFTs in five years or 10 years or 15 years. I from where I'm standing, it seems highly unlikely. Um but I don't really care about NFTs. I care about digital art, which I see as related but distinct, right? Like, I hope that the contemporary art world, by which I mean, you know, there are many art worlds, right? But I mean a certain art world in which I sort of operate in, right? The one of institutions, the one of you know institutions, including museums, but also you know magazines, et cetera. Um, you know, major galleries um, that they. That this will be a kind of clarion call that, in fact, born digital works of art are extremely culturally relevant. I don't think that NFTs have improved that because NFTs are still such a niche thing. All NFTs prove is that digital art is relevant to the 400,000 people who've collected NFTs, right? Like, it's not even a... Like, frankly, I think Difference Machines does a better job of proving that digital art is culturally relevant um, because it shows how artists working with digital technologies are speaking to things that transcend the small subset of people who belong to the quote-unquote digital art world, right? And the the, quote-unquote NFT art world is still so small that, frankly, it's not really like the art of our times, let's say, right? But I do think that that institutions, in fact, have been thinking more and more about digital art. Um, There are more and more exhibitions of digital art there are more and more um i mean you know for a while like art in america had a whole newsletter there are people who have been advancing this conversation and there are institutions that have been advancing this conversation for a long time and i don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater like i'm always a little hesitant to be like oh yeah it's going to be so great because you know now we're going to pay attention to digital art it's like no we have been like there have been a group of people who have been doing really important work to promote digital art you know for a long time and um you know the work ibeam has been doing, the work the Kitchen's been doing since its founding in what seventy three, right? Um, the work that you know Barbara London was doing back in the day at MoMA, the work that Christiana Paul has been doing at the Whitney since the nineties, the work that Johnny Polito was doing at the Guggenheim in the nineties, you know, and it, it you know just like and 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 like and that the work that Sarah Cook was doing up in Banff, and you know now over and so it's just like there it's not like there haven't. It's not like there haven't been curators who have been paying attention. It's not like there haven't been institutions that have been paying attention. It's not to say that it's ever been enough. But anyway, I just don't want to erase that history. But I do I do hope that there will be more engagement. Um, I, but I think that it, it always comes down to a question of of sort of values, I guess. And um, the art world has its own values. And I know cynical people from the NFT world would be like, oh, it's just about crass commercialism and like, you know, keeping your, you know, blue chip art and, you know. Um, free ports and blah, 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 blah. But that's not the art world. That's the art market. And that's a very small, like, that's just the highest end of the art market, right? The art market is even much bigger than that. And the art world is even bigger than that. So for the bigger art world outside of people, you know, storing art in freeports, ports, um, art is a conversation about things that matter very much, right? It's about beauty. It's about meaning. It's about how we know ourselves. It's about culture. It's about history. It's about politics, and so that conversation, like folding in digital technologies more and more, I think is really important. That's what we we're trying to do with difference machines, right, is to, to bring these things together. And um, so if, if NFTs are going to become relevant to the art world, I guess what I'm trying to say is that they have to become relevant to those conversations. They have to become relevant to the values that the mainstream contemporary art world holds. And again, I'm not talking about the Freeport high-end market stuff. I'm talking about the art world at large um so yeah and and basically somebody has to make a case right either the either somebody has to start making more art that is relevant to those conversations and there are some there are definitely some artists who are very much like people like Mitchell Chan or Rhea Myers who are very much making work that's like engaged with conceptual art and its legacy um you know artists like Harmful endorphin, engage with the legacy of abstraction in some way. <laughs> like, so there are artists who are making work that's relevant, but either you know more people in the NFT space are going to have to start making art like that, or um, there are NFTs are going to need their knights in shining armor. They're going to need their critics. They're going to need their curators. They're going to need people to make the argument that it is relevant in ways that people like me maybe just haven't seen yet thank
0: you it's just always such a pleasure to to talk to you so I, I really appreciate you joining the show today
2: thank you again so much for having me on I'm such a huge fan of IBM as you said it's there's uh, you know there's a lot of artists who are in this show who I know IBM has supported actually i met Maura Chanel one of the artists in the show when she was a resident at IBM um, oh wow so That's amazing. I, I was friends with Nora Khan and um, I went mm-hmm. to I was when Nora was also a resident and I went uh-huh. to hang out with Nora and in, she introduced me to Morrison. I'm really you know just so indebted to the work that you guys have been doing um, well, thank like, literally you. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't have had one of my favorite artists in the show for, for being introduced you know to IBM I mean, you guys supporting Morrison's work so yeah so thank you for everything that you do.
0: While I was in Buffalo, Tina hosted a lovely dinner party at her home. There I had the opportunity to meet probably a dozen optimistic curators, artists and arts entrepreneurs who shared their enthusiasm for the potential of Buffalo as a home for culture. And of course, the city already has an incredible history of being the proving grounds for many important artists, particularly those working in media arts. Despite the gray, cold weather when I visited, the city's future for the arts seems brighter than ever. Until next time, thanks for joining me at Informer, and I hope that you'll join us again.